welcome to another episode of the Pirate Punk Podcast. Yes, it's true. We are back. We are here. Uh, I'm uh, Nate Larkin here with our executive producer and uh, uh, resident wizard, Mark Whitlock. (laughs) Uh, appropriately, we're not in the treehouse today. We're not in the treehouse. It's Holy Week. We're actually in the church building. That's right. Around the corner from where they're having noon Holy Week services each day this week. Yes, yes, yes. So we've got to keep the laughter down if this <laughs> runs into service time on this holy, somber, sober week. And Aaron's joining us from the left coast. Hey, Aaron. Good morning. Um, That's all I have. Now you're, you are, uh, you know, one of your many roles, Aaron, is you are a pastor out there at Vintage Church. Uh, how does? No, it's not called Vintage Church. We are Vintage Community. Vintage Community. Oh wow! That's on purpose. You see, I don't usually explain it because then you're just one of those people. Okay, right. but. Since you know you're you're bringing it up in such an official kind of uh, capacity, we are vintage community. All right, so there's no steeple on the double wide out there. <laughs> it's a triple wide number one. <laughs> Man, who who is doing your research? Yes, our church is in a triple wide mobile home, okay. and there is no steeple. Okay, but the roof does leak often. So if we built a steeple, that would give us one more level of protection against water intrusion. <laughs> but it would make it harder for four friends to dig through the roof and lower their, their fifth friend through. That's it. <laughs> that, and that's why we don't do it, Mark. <laughs> so, um, so what sort of California countercultural things do you do at Vintage Community on, <laughs> uh, on a Holy Week? Uh-huh. Uh, well, as you know, there's going to be big earthquakes throughout the week, so we have to time our California services around that. <laughs> All right, you yeah. non-Californians oh, and I your thought, weird ideas. What I thought it was forest you, fires or landslides or mudslides or something. Okay. <laughs> Yes, all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what do we do? Well, we try to encourage folks to really take the whole week. I, I think Easter is the most important holiday, and I don't even like the word Easter, but I, again, don't want to be that guy. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this is Resurrection Sunday. Yes. And this is Jesus' Passion Week, and to me, it's the most important holiday of the year. Christmas, uh, the birth of Christ, that's awesome. But if he was only (laughs) burned, that would be bad too. But if he was only birthed, if he was only born, we would have no hope in him. Yeah, yeah. It is his death and resurrection that is central to our hope. So we just, and this is for me personally, every year it's a battle uh, to to take the week and in all the busyness of the kids, get people together. So we try to do different things throughout the week. Thursday, uh, we have a Seder so that we can physically experience what the Passover is. Good. Uh, so this this year, we've got 75 people that'll be sitting on cushions on the ground in the triple wide having Seder. Wow. Uh, this year, we will direct the drinking of wine better than... Uh, Three years ago, when we had a roller derby Jewess come from Los Angeles, and uh, frankly, people didn't know how much wine to put in their cups, and by the end of the night, I must say it was a jolly affair in the church. <laughs> so you you live and you learn and you ask for forgiveness, and Jesus says, I know what you meant to do. I love you. So we'll do that Thursday. <laughs> 
and then Friday is is trying to make that a uh, you know a, a special day of remembrance. Yeah, and then uh, Sunday we we celebrate. I mean, it's it's the one thing Lent really has going for it is it it brings a crescendo to the suffering of abstinence of whatever you're abstaining from. Yes, and I I, I do think for Resurrection Sunday to have deep impact in our hearts, we really have to prepare ourselves for it so that that joy can actually be a physical thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what we're doing this week. Wow, that's wonderful. I, uh, I got a lot of my friends here in Franklin are uh, engaged professionally in the work of the church, and so this is just a crazy, crazy busy time yeah, for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's when I celebrate no longer being vocationally tied to the church. Uh, <laughs> so I get to uh, come to church on Easter Sunday and reap the benefits of everybody else's hard labor. It'll be a big Sunday here at Christ Community Church, I'm sure. And uh, I am, uh, you know, my plans are simple for the week. I've got five grandkids in town. Wow. And uh, the three youngest we're going to have over, hopefully, and Die Easter eggs and do all that kind of stuff. That'll be fun. And uh, Mark, anything big going on at the uh, treehouse over the week? <laughs> well, it's uh, oddly enough because Easter's so early this year, spring break syncs up with uh, the Easter holidays. So I've actually had my youngest daughter with me mm-hmm. uh, for half of spring break, and it's been a roller coaster. Sure. Uh, it's been good. This will be my second Easter as uh, a divorced man. Yeah. And uh, so it's still. It still has a sting to it that I'm not uh, practicing all the Easter traditions with our family, and I won't be uh, united with our older kids as well coming home. And yeah, um, but uh, this Easter, and I would love to hear your reflections on this. Um, over the four years that I've been walking this journey as a pirate monk, um, each Easter's kind of taken on even a, a deeper meaning for yeah. me. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I thought I got grace. I mean, I was raised in a Reformed tradition and. Grace was talked about all the time, and mm-hmm. and uh, when I came to Christ, I at fourteen, I, I, I thought I got that word and yeah. I understood it. Uh, but after running my life into a ditch uh, with finances and lies and the divorce, uh, it, it is it's taken on new meaning because as I look at it, I, you know, I really don't deserve what Jesus did. Yeah, uh-huh. I really don't deserve what yeah. He did, and the fact that. Not only has does my life continue, and I see uh, certain blessings and, and certain benefits of life, to uh, um, to also see him giving me a chance, recovering a chance to serve, yeah, is huge. Because four years ago, I would have told you I was disqualified from ever doing anything meaningful to help anybody else, and um, that's been, um, for lack of a better word, that's been incredibly redemptive. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, for me. Uh, but Sunday morning, it, it hit me hard that uh, even though it was Palm Sunday, um, the reality of the coming week and yeah. the idea that we will commemorate the fact that he was punished and executed for what we did. Yeah, yeah. Um, just became that much richer this year. So that we can, and here's this great phrase, I just love this phrase from the New Testament, so that we too can be raised to newness of life. And that certainly is what recovery has been, this amazing flowering, this unexpected resurrection 
a new life far better than the one that I tried to construct for myself while running in the wrong direction, right? right. Uh, it is miraculous, this life that, that uh, blossoms and flowers in recovery. It comes only through death, through uh, suffering, and through the, the, the death of dreams and the death of reputation, uh, the death of illusion, uh, into um, something completely different. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that's, Easter. That's, see, that's that's awesome. Last night, throughout the week, we light five candles. The beginning of the week, and we do a devotion just lit by those candles throughout the week. And each night, blow out one. Yeah. So on the last night, uh, on on Good Friday, the last candle's blown out, and we're just sitting in the dark. And that's such a fun thing to do with the kids, and the powerful like we're sitting in it way but last night our devotional was Jesus heading towards his his great suffering and talking about yeah you've you've got your little grain of wheat if if you hold on to that all it is is a little grain of wheat it's got to yeah. die it's got to be buried and become amazingly more than it was yeah so I, I think Jesus is on board with everything you guys are saying endorsed by Jesus Christ <laughs> All right. Well, we went. Uh, we looked far and wide to find uh, a top author, really, of a of a of a brown of of a groundbreaking, stimulating, uh, uh, earth shattering book for this episode, and we couldn't find one. So we got Aaron. No. Uh, <laughs> no. Actually, Aaron. Uh, is is uh, uh, just prolific in uh, he's he's a deep thinker and a hard worker and has written uh, yeah all that to say when we come back we're going to have a con- <laughs> we're going to have a conversation with author Aaron Porter about uh, about his book Soul Architecture. So stay with us. We'll be back in a moment here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. She is cloaked in morning's darkness, Magdalena, now running to the tomb. Her heart is so consumed. The stone is rolled away. Wherein lies my master? The one who brought to me such life Can you tell me why you're weeping, Magdalena? Have they taken him away? Is he not in the grave? Tell me who you're seeking, Magdalena The one that they have crucified Woman, where's your faith now? Start believing Remember what he said He'd come back from the dead He'd never leave you or forsake you Do you believe that he's the Lord? Why would you seek as you do? The living among the dead He is not here Now do not fear Believe 
seek the man of sorrows, Magdalena. Then look into my eyes and see that he's alive. The spotless Lamb of God now and forever. The Holy One of back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Today on the show, we have that prolific author Nate was talking about, of which books he cannot recall have been written, but they were all as good as he doesn't remember them. <laughs> oh. how, are you doing this, how are you doing this morning, Aaron? I'm doing pretty good, Aaron. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Well, it is good to have you in the house. Okay. Uh, I, do you want me to do the rest of the interview? <laughs> well, that's, that, that's, that's one way to make sure the correct questions get asked. <laughs> uh, hey, this is fun. This is my first. I've interviewed you on this show before, Nate, but I got to say, I've never been interviewed on the Pirate Monk podcast before. That is true. You've, uh, you've been interrogated a few times, but never interviewed. <laughs> that's, that's true, too. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. what do you want to know? I'm ready. Okay. Well, you have uh, written a book about uh, uh, using as a springboard uh, this ancient, uh, somewhat obscure uh, method of understanding human personality, human dynamics, human gifting, spiritual gifting, I suppose, Called yeah, mostly mostly co-opted by Catholics, New Agers, and folks that believe in fairies. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, uh, what we're talking about is the Enneagram, which is, I suppose, when when I first heard about it, uh, in my mind, I put it in the category of horoscopes. Oh, no. Most people put it in the category of a personality test, like okay. the Myers-Briggs or something like that. Okay. Horoscope. Well, it's it, a, it's a, okay, go ahead. You can defend your position. Well, uh, I just saw a, diag- I saw a diagram with a circle and a bunch of points on it. Okay, that is, that is totally true. An enneagram is, is, the, is the Greek word for a nine-pointed graph. So a okay. pentagram is a five-pointed graph, and okay. that represents the evil goat and Satan himself. So when people see 
uh, a similar looking thing, except with nine points. They're like, that's just like a souped up satanic pentagram. So yeah, it does. Uh, uh, th- that is why. And, and I'm being nice to you guys and letting you use the word Enneagram. Yeah. In, in, in every way we use it. And in the book, I don't use any of the words of the Enneagram. I rewrote the terminology and the phraseology. Uh, because I didn't want people to get hung up on those kinds of stupid things. Because you're yeah. right. The first time you see it, you have all these thoughts that have nothing to do with the point. Right. So uh, the the people listening to this podcast actually have are, are hearing more than even the people who participate in soul architecture. Really? They don't even know half of this stuff because I'm like, this is useless, and you're going to Google it and end up on a fairy site. Ah. Ooh. All right. But it's what, just unhelpful. But, okay, tell me... Aaron, uh, first of all, where did you first encounter this uh, material, and why did it fascinate you so? All right. I'll take two steps back before that. Okay. Uh, I grew up in a place called the Gospel Chapel, and we were a secret Brethren Church. I didn't know it was Brethren Church till later. Yeah. And... You would think a place called the Gospel Chapel would really prepare me to understand the gospel, but uh-huh. the gospel to us was evangelism. Right. You give the gospel to non-Christians, and then the rest of your life is discipline and discipleship and basically sin management. Right. So you as a Christian do sin management and then tell people about the hope that's in Christ. So the gospel was for non-Christians. Oh, then man. Then when I was in... When I was in school, uh, one of the books we were assigned to read was The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, when I bring up that name, at least 50% of the people think, isn't he a heretical writer? Doesn't he have unorthodox teaching? I don't know. I only read The Normal Christian Life, and it was pretty good. Plus, he died for his faith. So, you know, you got to still like him, even if you don't like him. So there. Normal Christian Life was written off a series of lectures he gave. So the first 100 pages uh, are really tight, and then it kind of falls apart after that because they were just trying to find lectures that sort of explain some stuff. But the first 100 pages are all about why the gospel is for Christians. Uh And that he he puts it in a four-step kind of movement that we start with knowing, we get the information of who Jesus is and what he's done, the work of the cross. And then the next part is the reckoning, which I had never understood. So he's mm-hmm. going to Romans talking about I reckon myself or I count myself dead to sin but alive in Christ. And he's saying the difference between that is this reckoning is a very Holy Spirit moment where I actually believe it. My belief becomes my default thinking. Yes. I don't have to work through the information to get there. It's just what I know because reckoning is a banking term that means the bottom number of the ledger. Once I add it up, I believe this is what I have in my bank account. It's the bottom line truth. Yeah. So he's saying there's a difference between these two things, which really points to our Western idea of education, right? We we have been taught that to know something is to be able to regurgitate the right answer and put it on the paper, and then we know it, and we get an A. And that can work for harder sciences, which is really, frankly, why a lot of the debate exists between Christian Christianity and science, because, yeah, oh, good, I have this formula. I can just plug it in, and it works in this way. But when you get to art and philosophy and religion, 
that's not the way this works at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in fact, I have a friend who's a Cornell PhD philosopher, and he would often talk about how messed up the lives of his philosophy colleagues were when they would try to treat philosophy as a hard science. And it became very cold and detached from the human experience. Yeah. And they were mostly miserable people. Yeah. Now, that's his quote, not mine. I only knew that one particular uh, Ivy League philosopher, um, and I don't want to speak to any of my other philosopher friends' uh, heart state. So if I stick with that idea of knowing, uh, knowing something, then I will think when I know what the gospel is intellectually, then it's supposed to transform my life, and it doesn't. Right. I mean, how many Christians do you guys know that don't have transformed lives, but they can put the right answers in the blank? Right. Me. Yeah. So that's that's disappointing, and it causes us confusion as to, like, does this really work? And then, Nate, what do we have to do in the church when we're not transformed by the knowledge of the gospel? We start to fake it. Right. So uh, as I started reading about this knowledge and then reckoning, this other step, and then he says the next step is we present ourselves before God, and then we walk by the Holy Spirit. Presenting ourselves before God when we've reckoned the gospel is no longer, uh, take me as I am. Just just as I am, take me. I'm giving myself as a gift to you, but but I'm a worm. I'm a sinner. What? Shut up. Jesus died so that you are reborn as a new creature, holy and righteous, and you are a worthy offering to God now. Yes. So without reckoning the gospel, my whole act of worship, of offering my life as a spiritual sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, I miss the whole point that God is incredibly stoked about my offering of myself because he loves Jesus that much, and all of that love is now given to me, is placed upon me. So this order becomes very important. So I read Normal Christian Life, I'm like, this is amazing. I start to talk about it, then I start teaching on it. I made small group DVD series for the church I was at, and people were getting really excited. And so for like four or five years, people were super stoked about what uh, I had called the foundations of faith. And I saw very little life change. Woohoo! Back to didactic Western teaching. I thought if I can put this in a consumable educational format, it yeah. would cause change. Yeah. And it didn't. And I was disappointed, <laughs> I must say. So <clears throat> this is where the, the next piece that started to grow in me really changed a lot for me. It's that the reality I live in, my reality is not nearly as concrete as I assumed it was. Yes. My, my reality is not based on data, the data of my life. Now, this means reality is very subjective for us humans. Let me give an example. Let's pretend that we can have five carbon-copied kids, little kids. I'm going to give a negative example because it's easier to see how starkly true this is. Let's say these, these are little boys, and at six years old, they endure uh, four years of sexual abuse by a family member. Just horrific. Okay. Now, these guys are in their same environment. What are the chances that all five of those kids will come out behaving, thinking, and seeing life in the same way? 
Right. They won't. They'll be different. Right. So one of those kids could become one of the most fiercely protective people uh, towards children, most trustworthy of all people to care for children because of their experience, because of the data. Another one might himself become an abuser of children because of his experience, because of his data. Right? We can go through all the nuances of what can come of that data. Well, if data is what creates reality, there should be consistency there, but there's not. Why? Because it matters how they perceive that information, that data of their life. And how they perceive it is how they will believe life is, which equals their reality. Right. Now, lest we think that's too weird, I'm pretty sure that everything that is is because God did it on purpose. And spectacularly, we're the only animals that do this. Like, if you're a lion, your life is built on data. Where's food? Where's water? Where's good folks to mate with? And where's safety? Just, it's all based on their physical environment and their instinctual needs. We're the only ones that have this weird, moving, subjective kind of reality that is based on our perceptions. But then we look at Romans 12, it says that we are changed, we metamorphosize like little butterflies through the, what, transforming of our minds. minds. And, and we're not supposed to be conformed to the thinking patterns of this world. Don't be conformed to those patterns. Don't get stuck in that, but be changed by having your mind changed. So the gospel is not about changing our circumstance. I mean, if we read scripture, we see that more people have horrible circumstances, many of whom God does not let off the hook. Lest you think that's not true, go talk to Jeremiah about it. But it doesn't matter because the gospel isn't about the earthly kingdom, but about the kingdom in our hearts and our minds coming into uh, unity with God's mind, the way he sees it. And so in that way, the gospel will change the way I see life today. It becomes the lens through which I see today. When I look on my past, it changes how I see the past, which is crazy that my past can actually change through the power of the gospel today. Yeah. And it changes my hope for the future and thus gives a target for my faith. So this is where I needed more in my life than information. I needed my mind to be changed so my reality would become Christ-centered. And so to do that, I need to understand why I thought the way I did. Now we come to the Enneagram. And there was a guy I was on staff with that uh, kept saying, Aaron, you got to read Richard Rohr's book on the Enneagram. I'm like, yeah, okay. Lots of people recommend books, even dear friends, and I ignore them. Nate does the same thing. He still hasn't read almost anything I've written. So anyways, uh, it wasn't until uh, Scott Dente recommended the same book with the same passion, and I was like, ah, oh, fine. Two buddies are telling me to read the same book. I'll read it. And it kind of blew my mind with how accurately it showed me my own internal motivations and heart. But it was super dark. It really focused on why I do the bad stuff I did. And we had Richard Rohr on this program a number of years ago, and he and I ended up talking all afternoon that day. And he is such a monk. He will not answer a straight question. So I, 
So I said, dude, you know, your book is really dark. And he's like, yeah. All right. If, if you'd like to elaborate, Richard Rohr, I'm, I'm ready. So I started getting other books. And the deal is, and, and I, my favorite authors on the Enneagram are Rizzo and Hudson. Uh, one of them passed away a few years ago. I, I won't say which one because, you know, that'll start one of those rumors that might not be true. Um, but one of them passed away. I love the way they break it down. And they say that the history of this goes all the way back to the Desert Fathers, that first monastic community in Egypt, uh, people that were escaping from Rome, where it was now a Christian Rome, and yet the debauchery was just as Roman debauched as ever. And so they withdrew and really became separatists and in a lot of ways kind of legalistic. But these guys who aren't Christians, Rizzo and Hudson, say this: a form of this was a system by which when pilgrims came and intruded upon their privacy, they could say, well, quickly, I understand your heart tends towards these sins and these ways of not trusting God. Stop doing that. Well, if that is the the beginnings, the origins, it was always focused on finding the darkest part of your heart. Yeah. And so it kind of changed and became more uh, concise over the years, and really only since the, I guess, 60s and 70s did it become what it is today as far as a system. The difference between this as a personality profiling and something like Myers-Briggs, where, you know, am I an introvert, am I an extrovert, is that most personality profiling systems look at the, the external of how you behave. The Enneagram focuses on why. It doesn't matter about the the external. I can be a shy person, but I can be shy for very different reasons, for very different fears, and I might use shyness as a tool to control those fears and make life feel more peaceful. Mm -hmm. So because it was so accurate at showing these whys of who we are, I started thinking, does it not point us towards the flip side of who I am that in my flesh is so broken is also the beautiful way that when I trust the spirit, when I'm reckoned to the gospel, what's the awesome part of me? And I found that all these, the authors I were reading, even ones that tried to touch on positive things, it, it came out flat. The most vibrant part was the negative. And it was because there was no gospel component to make the beautiful side make sense. So that's how I was introduced to the Enneagram. Wow. There's the brief answer to your question, Nate. Yeah. Uh, I want to give the listeners just a moment to, to kind of digest what Aaron has said, and then we're going to carry this conversation on. We're going to take a quick break here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Show great love. 
Voices risen from the dead Trampling over death by death Come awake, come awake Come and rise up from the grave Christ is risen from the dead We are one with Him again Come awake, come awake Come and rise up from the grave We're back in the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, if you're like me, uh, you are being invited on at least a weekly, if not a daily basis, 
on uh, Facebook to take some kind of a personality profile <laughs> test. What kind of a banana are you? What Star Trek character are you? Uh, and uh, there are available any number of kind of cosmotype diagnostic tests that can tell you uh, what number you are on the Enneagram. So I've, tell us about those tests, Aaron. Which one, you know, what, what character in the uh, Andy Griffith Whoa. show are you, <laughs> and how does that relate to the Enneagram? I love that. My, my kids try to make me take those tests more than anyone else. I want to know which, which superhero villain you are, Dad. Yeah. Uh, so uh, here's two, two warnings. Number one. The free tests are usually incredibly inaccurate. Yeah, so if you just worth Google the price. Uh, Enneagram test, uh, I, I took as many as I could find to see what they would label me, and I was labeled as just about everyone. So in the Enneagram, there are nine numbers. So it's going to say you are this number. Um, and then there are basically two types of each number. So there's like 18 different uh, personalities. Uh, so I recommend uh, a guy named Jerry Wagner, who was and maybe is still a professor at Loyola in Chicago, did a very in-depth one. It cost $10. And there are a lot of questions. Uh, usually takes about 40 minutes to take, but it is very accurate. I've probably given that test to more than 200, 200 to 300 people, and there have only been maybe three possibly four that it didn't end up being accurate on. So it is at uh, WEP, as in Paul, SS.com, WEPS.com. We'll give you a link in the show notes, uh, and, and that'll tell you that. Now, when you get a number, I, I describe it in two ways, Nate, and, and then we're going we're gonna to pick on you. Okay. First, I, des- I describe these nine numbers as being planets uh, because... You can learn about other planets, but you have never experienced them. So let me, let me give you how extreme this example is. I want to be able to honor the fact that the way you think and what you feel is nothing like me. Mm-hmm. I might think, hey, I'm an overthinker sometimes. Well, uh, actually, there's one planet that overthinking is taken to a, a doctorate-level science uh-huh. and it's it can be horrific for them so though i've experienced like shades of these we don't get it so on my planet i'm an eight uh which makes me possibly candidate least likely to be a religious leader of any sort we're much more fit to be sociopaths and uh and dictators but so it is uh, we we're really okay with <laughs> Anyway, go ahead. Yes, I was, I was gonna say megalomaniac, but the word that came to my mind was mongoloid. So I was gonna say most likely to be mon- mongoloid dictators. I'm like, that doesn't sound right in my head. I'm going to not say that. Yeah, uh, but maybe that too. Who knows? So we're we are the most comfortable with anger. So my first reaction to most things is anger. Uh huh. And conflict is intimacy. So if I could get Nate like furious right now, uh-huh. like where he just loses control, turns a table over and cusses me out, I would feel like this is like the most intimate moment of mine and Nate's relationship 
because this is unfiltered. It's truth. It's like, this is great. And I would walk away feeling so good about Nate. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, he'd be devastated. Right. And so yeah, I, I had to learn this in my marriage, that conflict to me was intimacy. And I was wrecking my wife because I didn't get that about myself. Right. Well, when I give that, I give that example of my planet. And honestly, there is no one from any other planet that actually relates to that. It just sounds nuts. Mm-hmm. So these are different planets. But once I understand that relational conflict usually comes when my wife will say something or do something and I interpret her words or behaviors into what would it mean if I said or did that? My language, my planet is the filter through which I understand her. And that's horrible because that's never what she meant. That's not what was in her heart. So this gives me the opportunity to give way more space for her to be her because when she does something, I can say, okay, that seems really off to me because that would be off if I did it. But, oh, this is this is what she's dealing with. This is the fear that she's experiencing, and here's how I need to love her in that. So it's a it's a great tool for parenting. Man, I don't even know how I would parent my kids if I didn't know what planets they're from. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly can't imagine. I feel so bad for every parent who doesn't have this. Because when my kids do weird stuff, my my default now is, okay, I get what you're what you're trying to overcompensate for. And I can try to love that part of their heart instead of respond to the behavior. It's so much easier. It's cliff notes. So they're planets, but it's also the body of Christ. And so I separate it into these three areas, the head part of the body, the heart, and the gut. Now, I met a guy once that had no arms or legs, so I know that the body can live and function with only a head, a heart, and a gut. And the cool thing about this, uh, consider this for a second. God made man in his image, both male and female, he created them. So he made two genders of the human species that are co-image bearers. Right. But the but the and the the most complete picture of God cannot come through only a man or only a woman because each of them are carrying different aspects of God's image. But I don't think it stops there. I think that within men and women there's incredible diversity of God's image. And that comes with different passions and giftings and the way they think and operate and only when the whole body of Christ comes together and learns to love one another through the lens of the gospel, to honor that creation of God's image in one another, that becomes the most complete picture to the world of who Jesus is. Yeah. And most denominations, if you think about it, kind of segregate by certain types of people. You've got churches that are way intellectual. We're just going to study and think about data and truth, and and that's how they roll. Other people are way more prone to experience. We want to feel God. We want to touch God. Well, that's great, except we've just separated out the body of Christ, not learned how to honor one another or live with one another, and then the church only gets a very fragmented view of who Jesus is that's mostly built on hostility, bickering, and meanness. So uh, we've got the head, the heart, and the gut. And in each of these areas of the body, there are three planets. So heart people are planet two, three, and four. Head people are five, six, and seven. Gut people are eight, 
9, and 1. And each of these parts of the body are prone to struggle with their flesh in kind of similar ways. Heart people struggle with a lot of shame and sadness and a struggle with their identity. And in their flesh, the commonality between the planets 2, 3, and 4 is they need other people to be a mirror for them to give them an identity. They need other people to reflect something back so that they feel like they know who they are. Now, that's in their flesh. How does the gospel take care of that for heart zone people? Jesus is saying, I will be your mirror. Yeah. Learn how to find your identity as a new creature through my work. So as a heart zone person learns to surrender to an identity in Christ, then they get to live out all their amazing giftings without getting a carnival mirrors of other people that either make them look way too fat or way too skinny, and neither of it's real. Head people, five, six, and sevens, they struggle with fear and anxiety, and they try to control those internal feelings of fear and anxiety. So uh, fives use data. If I just know more, I just need more information, a little more information, and I won't feel anxious about this. Well, Solomon already told us that's not true. Right. The more you figure out, the more you'll find out you don't know, and you're going to exponentially make yourself more anxious. Sixes use overthinking. If I can figure out everything bad that can ever happen, then I'll not have this anxiety. See, see, that's what they're struggling with. But again, in surrendering to the God that is saying, no, you're going to live by faith, which means you have these beautiful gifts of gathering data and processing information, but in the end, you will have to surrender to the fact that I know the end game and not you. Uh, so I have to surrender to this gospel trust in Christ. Guts on people deal with anger and external control. So they're trying to control their the environment around them uh, because mostly that environment is making them upset. <laughs> and they have to surrender the fact that uh, control is a complete illusion. They never had it and they never will. Yeah. So let's get down to brass tacks. Nate? Yeah, so I took the test. I'd, you sent me the link. I did the W. This was a couple years ago. I think I came back at 10. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember. What did I come back as, Aaron? You are a three. Yeah, and you told me so, I was a three before I took the damn test. Okay. So uh, I don't know if I did, man. I am bad at guessing. I don't guess with people if I can help it because I'm usually wrong. Yeah. So a three is in the uh, the heart zone. Right. But they're in the middle of the heart zone. Threes are strong leaders. Threes and eights are very much lead from the front kind of people. Okay. Folks end up getting behind them and following them whether they like it or not. All right. So they they don't like to be perceived as being a heart person. They'd rather be seen as like, well, I'm a strong person. I'm an intellectual person. I'm, I'm anything except an emotional person. Mm-hmm. Yet, yet beneath it, they're struggling with that heart zone flesh that is saying, you aren't worthy. Have, have this shame, embrace it, take this sadness. It's who you are. And the way that threes use other people as mirrors is through achievement. So they're always trying to show people something. Look what I did. And when people look at that and go, wow, that's amazing, then the three says, oh, good, I'm worthy of love. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, that's an incredibly brief explanation with three. But if you look at even what you wrote about in your in your book about your early life, you just see how this is this is the foundational architecture of your life. Sure, sure. That was put in a crucible where your flesh was fanned, not a gospel identity. And so what do you write about in your book? Here are all the ways I'm going to put forth a mask to get people to affirm an idea of me. It doesn't even matter that it's not me. I just need to see reflected back by people the idea of who I am. And then I'll feel okay without Jesus. I can leave Jesus out of this altogether. Right. So the best thing that happened to you was uh, finally outing yourself. The threes I know that have been most able to embrace their gospel identity are the ones who can no longer pretend they're something they're not, that they're exposed and they can't hide it anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. And and that's the the greatest hope for them. Yeah, yeah. You know, one, one of the easiest ways to know someone from your planet, Nate, is that as far as I have seen... And and this is this is my weekly. This is four days a week. I'm meeting with either people going through this, or uh, people who are learning to lead this. And the most common thing with threes is they're the only people who feel comfortable telling anecdotes about their life, telling stories about their life where they are the hero. So they get to like and and this is what happened last week, and somehow they're feeling comfortable saying, and then people just looked at me and said, "Man, you're so amazing at this," and seen. That's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it makes people so uncomfortable to hear those kinds of stories. But the three, if they're in their flesh, they don't even realize that everybody's uncomfortable with anyone who tells a story where they're the hero. Mm. So I I don't know if you can think in your head of people that you're like, oh yeah. That person does tend to only tell stories where they're the hero. Ah. So that's that's one little in case. I would say if our listeners know they do that, but threes totally don't know they do that unless they get help. So the question is, what do you do with this? How does this become gospelicious? Right? Because I, I kind of just gave you the bad news of it. And this is where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in. If this didn't seem like I was co-opting enough strange and secular stuff for the use of the gospel, let's add a, a, a psychotherapy technique. Okay. Here's the, here's the definition of cognitive behavioral therapy. Ready? Cognitive behavioral therapy is an action-oriented form of psychosocial therapy that assumes that maladaptive or faulty thinking patterns cause maladaptive behavior oh. and negative emotions. Right. Okay. Okay, so the treatment focuses on changing the individual's thoughts in order to change his or her behavior and emotional state. Right. All right. So I I was working with a person who was uh they had hypochondriasis. Right. They always imagined illnesses that was killing them, and people kind of use that phrase lightly. I'm I'm such a hypochondriac. Um, please never say that again. Uh, most of you are not actual hypochondriacs. A real hypochondriac is having way huge trouble getting out of bed because they're sure that a mole is killing them. So this person started going to cognitive behavioral therapy, and they had to work these practical tools so that they stopped believing lies and came to accept the truth that the mole wasn't killing them. 
Okay. All right, so I see this, I hear this, I'm watching this person go through this process, and I'm thinking, isn't this every sermon that's ever been given? I mean, at least every good <laughs> sermon is saying, God says this in his word. We do this, or we see this in the world, but that's not his kingdom. This is his kingdom. And it's this constant back and forth of, we don't see it right in the world, in the flesh. We need to see it like God tells us his kingdom is. Well, that's that's basically cognitive therapy without any practical tools by which to come to believe God's version of it. Yeah. And then what do we get the next Sunday but a whole new thing that we don't believe right? Yeah. So I started just bringing in these cognitive therapy tools, except making them gospel-centered. So if, Nate, you and I sat down, the process would be, first we're going to talk through probably for like two to four months, what is the gospel? What does it mean that I am a new creature in Christ, that my identity is holy in Christ? So we have very clear vocabulary on what the gospel is. So that's the first part of the book. The next part is I need a glimpse of how my flesh is working to subvert my perception of the world into a flesh idea instead of surrendering to the reality of the gospel in my life. So that's when we get into the number, your planet. Then the next step is now let's use these tools, and we'll use things like T-charts. So if you're talking, Nate, and you say like, so a real one that I've been working with a person recently is I feel uh, sad because I think God can't or won't ever use a person like me. So that's the title. If you picture a capital T, that goes at the top. On the left side of the leg of the T, we give all of the voice of the accuser saying, you should feel sad because God can't or won't ever use you. And so we wrote, you know what? Heck, I'm just going to read this thing. It's sitting right here on my desktop. Here it is. Here's the accuser's uh, justifications. I should feel that. Now, would we agree that I feel sad because I know I'm not the kind of person who is going to be or can be used by God. Is that a gospel statement? Is that what God would say of me? Of course not. So, accuser side, you know that you don't have a personality that makes people feel joy or love. You only bring them guilt and the weight of condemnation. Of course God won't use that. Okay, so that's this person may not have thought that, but they have felt that. And so as we work through the justification of their flesh saying, yeah, God can't use you, these are the false narratives that are underneath the surface that they're ruminating on, they're meditating on. The second one is, you know you're too afraid to actually engage people, so what exactly are you bringing to the table? This person's shy. The third one was, you know you don't actually love or care about people, you're incredibly self-absorbed. And the last one was, you are essentially the same as you were in high school. This is an adult. Nothing has changed. Why in the world would you think things can be any better than this? So those are very specific accusations that justify why I should feel this sadness in my life. Then we go to the right side, and and this person, if, if you're working this, 
gospel truth, then every time I'm having these non-gospel thoughts, I need to recognize them, understand, start to learn how to understand what the accusations are, and then we go to the right side, which is the gospel truth. And so what would God say as a father? So the easiest way to understand it is if my my daughter came home and said, God can never use a person like me. And I said, what? Why? And she said those accusations. How would I feel as a dad? What would I say as a dad? Now ratchet that up by a million and bring in the person and work of Christ, and you'll have an Abba theology answer. So for the first accusation, you don't have a personality that makes people feel joy or love. You bring guilt and the weight of condemnation. Of course, God won't use that. Uh, We break it down. And God says, I love your personality. You delight me. Well, is that biblical? Yeah, he mm-hmm. delights over us with singing, right? We're made in his image. We got tons of scripture backing that up. You are my creation. You are my child. 1B, no one gets to tell you who you are. Not even you. I know you, and I love you. Okay, is that backed up by scripture? Yeah. The third one. You've made mistakes in the past, and I know you'll struggle again in the future. That doesn't define who you are. I'm right here with you in your victories as you grow and when you blow it and have to make amends to those you hurt. Mm. The fourth one, you can't mess up those things I've put in place. Even when you've hurt someone, I'm still in control. Don't let your fear of messing up keep you from being Totally the you that I made and love. So, for the first accusation, we have these, who's my identity in Christ, and because of that, how does the Father respond to me? And we break it down that specifically, and we do this over and over and over until things start to move from knowing to reckoning. And we're not in control of that. It's a lot like Frankenstein putting the raw parts on the table, but that monster, though those parts were good, they weren't alive yet. And that's like all that good theology we've learned in church is just raw material. It's good, but it has to be enlivened by the Spirit so that I truly come to believe and be formed by those pieces of information and truth. So that's that's kind of where it goes. Once I understand my tendencies— And because I know what planet this person's from, I can help them work through what the accusations are based on their, the way they're prone to think and feel. And then we can address the gospel part that their flesh wants to keep them from hearing. And that is what soul architecture is. Thank you. Good night. Yeah. So, so let, let me see if I can summarize it. Okay. Uh, In your personal journey, uh, you were able to take a, an ancient and orthodox tool and see it through the lens of the gospel. Whoa, well, no, I got, I got to stop you there. I, I'm not claiming it's an orthodox tool. It's just a tool that can be used in any way people choose. Okay, but you found a tool and I, were able to see it through a gospel lens and see the power that it could could bring about in your life and in the lives of others. Uh, second of all, what the Enneagram does far better than Myers-Briggs or DISC is it gets beyond your reaction, a person's reaction to something and how someone behaves in a certain situation, but gets to the depth of the why of that behavior. And once you're there, you can identify which planet you're on in the three different uh, zones, whether it be head, heart, or gut. 
And once you determine that, you're then able to look at uh, even a deeper why. So here is something that I believe about myself, okay? Uh, what's true, what's not true about that? What's coming from the accuser? What's coming from gospel truth? And be able to yeah. uh, exp- embrace the, the Abba Father's love for each of us and the grace that he offers uh, by, by seeing how we do that. So here's the big question. I do all of this. I go to the, the website that we'll link to from our show notes and take uh, the WEPSS, and I take the test, and I find out what, what zone I'm in. I find out what number I'm in. I read this great book by Aaron Porter, and so what? What difference does it make in my life to know my zone, to know my planet, and to begin thinking this way? So what? I mean, that that is such an important question, and... And also the most ridiculous question ever. Don't take that as a knock on your question. Uh, The so what is, as I start to reckon the gospel, which is impossible, it's so hard to explain what that moment is. Uh, My experience, I had been teaching this uh, Foundations of Faith stuff about what is the gospel, what is my identity in Christ, for about a year and a half before uh, the Spirit enlivened it yeah. in me. Yeah, preach. And I was driving to work, and I was, uh, I can remember the exact part of the drive I was on. It was about a 20-minute drive to work where I used to live. And something happened. It was a thought thing. And I honestly don't remember the thought. It could have been a lustful thought. It could have been someone cut me off and made me angry because everything makes me angry. And... I reached the part of the road. I cried out to God. I'm like, Father, deal with this. I am so sick of that. Will you deal with that? And I stopped and thought, what? I just had a response to a flesh experience where I did not associate my identity. I'm. Why do I keep thinking that, God? Why do I do that where it's my identity is that flesh behavior? But instead, it was me in Christ with my heavenly Father against my flesh, which was a different entity altogether. And I was siding with my Father against my flesh instead of siding with the accuser against my identity in Christ. And I started weeping. I had to pull over on the freeway so that I could have probably the biggest cry of the last 30 years of my life. The next feeling I had was, of course, can you guess it? Anger. Mm -hmm. And I I said, God, I mean, I'm on the way to the church where I work at. I said, God, if this is a one-time feeling of what it feels like to be a Christian, then I quit. I promise you I quit. I will, I cannot be a pastor if this isn't what it feels like to be a Christian from this moment on. And I am so grateful that that shift was not a one-time temporary thing, that I just saw things differently after that. So we work hard, and we do our part of the work, and then we pray and wait on the Lord to reveal this. And I got to say, it's the most fun thing. There is no, no greater joy in my life than when individuals hit that moment. And it really is a moment. They don't always recognize it, but I'll see that they start to talk differently, that they're no longer talking in first person about them and their flesh, that they are their flesh. 
It's the reason that Paul can say, I no longer sin, but it's the sin that's in me. He's talking about the difference between his identity in Christ and this vehicle of flesh. I've talked before about a dog that I had that used to just attack blonde women, and he finally bit one. Now, I possessed the dog, I had to keep the dog in a fence, and there were consequences when that dog uh, behaved inappropriately. But I didn't bite blonde women. I was never confused about that. I was never ashamed like, I'm, I'm such a wacko, man. What's wrong with me that I hate blondes so much and attack them? Now, that's a stupid example, except that's what we do as Christians, where we say, I live in this vehicle of flesh. This vehicle will die. It is part of my life here, but it is not part of my core identity, because when I die, I will still exist, but that will no longer exist. So it is not essentially me. It's only a part of me for this process. It's a dog in a fence I live with and I have to be responsible for, but it is not my identity. It's a stinking dog and I'm a dude. And yet when I sin as a Christian, where do I go? What's wrong with me? I'm so surprised that my flesh likes flesh things. I so expect that my flesh will, I expect that it'll just stop craving flesh things. I wish we'd stop acting like those desires of the flesh, all that stuff, are just supposed to magically go away while we still live in a vehicle of flesh, and that God doesn't use those to drive us to him. So thank you very much, flesh. Thank you very much, desire to look at porn. You made me broken, come to a father who brings me up in his love. Looks like you got the short end of the stick, porn desire. Ha ha, you're now an agent of Jesus. Like, come on. We're so sin-focused and give the Give sin all of the rights to our time, our mental energy, and our identity. Well, screw that. That's lame. That is not gospelicious. Oh, that is a that's a, that is a that is a novel and dare I say beautiful way to look at the core issue for those of us who have an experience with an addiction. And to understand that that addiction does not uh, define me. It's not my identity. And uh, to devote myself solely to sin management is, uh, it's a fool's errand. There's something so much better and so much higher. Well, uh, Mark, Aaron, time certainly has flown. We have, uh, we have filled the hour. Mark, uh, uh, Aaron, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, let me give you one thing, because the book isn't available. We only give the book to people who are going through Soul Architecture. Yeah. So... In the next, give me eight weeks, I will make sure there's a version up on Noise Trade to be digitally downloaded, and uh, I'll get a guy to reformat that to be available on Amazon or something where a hard copy can be purchased. Um, I, I don't usually even make books I write available because I just write them for my own sake and use. And so here's what you can do. You can come to piratemonkpodcast.com or you can link to the show notes from our Facebook page and there you'll see an opportunity uh, to let Aaron know you're interested uh, in getting a copy of Soul Architecture. So give us your information there. Aaron will receive that information and be able to communicate with you. And once the book is available uh, in a format uh, for either uh, on Noise Trade or another format, you'll receive another email back from uh, from Aaron, letting you know uh, that it's available and so that you can go get it. 
but for now, we'll also have a link to where you can take uh, an inventory about where you stand on the Enneagram, what planet you're on, and begin to understand uh, that information and begin to make your own T-charts to walk through that yourself. I got to pause you there, Mark. Okay. Uh, that that is a reasonable and titillating offer because we all get excited about these kinds of things. Um, but just be careful because like I said, there aren't a lot of gospel versions of this. So uh, there is kind of a part in the book where it says, now is the time to take your test. We've talked about the gospel and here's how to apply this to your life. Um, so I'm not telling people what to do. You make up your own minds, but just be careful not to get sucked into stuff that isn't bringing you closer to Christ because a tool is just a tool. It's neither good nor bad. It's only good or bad based on whether or not it's drawing me into, uh, a gospel picture of who my Abba is and how he loves me. So be aware of that, please. Uh, and be aware of the many resources that are out there and how uh, many of them are not gospelicious at all. Good word. Thanks for uh, keeping that uh, focused and uh, on where we need to be and, and how to handle it. So, so handle with care uh, as you yeah. move forward. And if anybody else has uh, thoughts or questions, uh, if you want to know more about soul architecture, we do have enough people leading it that we can do Skype sessions. I've done Skype sessions around the country. Uh, for folks, you can go to vintagecommunity.org, click on the Soul Architecture tab, and it'll give you all the information. So if this is a process you might want to go through, we probably could only do maybe 15 people uh, more than we're already doing at this moment. So if you're interested in that, uh, check it out. And then if anyone has questions or thoughts, shoot me a note at Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at vintagecommunity.org. And I would be happy to uh, have a, a little dialogue with you because this is all exciting for me. And meanwhile, as you Google this, make sure you spell soul, S-O-U-L. If you spell it S-O-L-E, you'll wind up on a website devoted to shoe design. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we'll be back next week. Uh, Mark, you're lining up more uh, scintillating, stimulating, uh, entertaining, highly informative, and uh, motivating guests. Are, are you not? I am. We've got some stuff coming up with a, a great pastor out of Atlanta and the story of his dad. Yeah. We're going to be talking about the uh, uh, neurochemical side of addiction coming up okay. in a few weeks. We also are going to be talking to two pirate monks, one who invited another one to join uh, a Samson group in another city and hear their story. Guys that we've never met okay. but have been impacted by the book and uh, by being a part of a community. So all that's coming up in weeks ahead. All right, fantastic. Okay, so uh, we'll, uh, I guess until next week, we're going we're gonna to sign off on this episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Mark. And I'm Aaron. And we're your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Junior P, preaching recovery.